Well, Happy New Year. It is great to be with you today to be able to open up God's Word together on this, the first Sunday of 2022. I think it's a blessing to gather any Sunday, but I especially enjoy being together on the first Sunday of each year as we set out to follow Jesus together for another year. Now, I had initially planned to go back to Romans for this uh, first Sunday, but then I decided early in the week to wait one more week on that and instead take us to a psalm this morning. One reason for that is I just like the psalms. I love preaching on them. It's been about six months since we've been in a psalm. But another reason is that I've wanted for quite a while to get back to what are called the songs of ascent. Now, what are those? We read some earlier today. For starters, the songs of ascent are a collection of 15 psalms in a row that are found within the last section of the book of Psalms. They go from Psalm 120 to Psalm 134. You'll see the title at the beginning of every one of those psalms, and they're only there. Okay? Now, two years ago, on the first Sunday of 2020, just thinking back to this, we were still meeting at Centennial Elementary School before any of us had ever said the word COVID. Okay? On that Sunday, we looked at one of the first songs of ascent, one of the ones we read earlier, Psalm 121. And this morning, on the first Sunday of 2022, I want to return to the songs of ascent, and I want to look at one of the last songs in that collection, a very short psalm, Psalm 121. 33. Okay, so you can go there, but I want to talk a little bit more about the Songs of Ascent as a whole. Okay, what, what is going on with them? And most agree that the Songs of Ascent were pilgrim songs. In other words, they were a collection of songs for those who were on their way to Jerusalem or as they were returning from Jerusalem. And to make sense of that, you'd have to remember that Jewish men in particular, were expected, required, to go up to Jerusalem three times per year, no matter where they lived in Israel. Okay, they, had to go, they had to do this. Women were also welcome to come, and they often attended, especially at Passover. But it was a requirement for Jewish men, in particular, to go three times a year. So this meant that pilgrimage would be a consistent and regular part of the life of every faithful Jewish man, okay? So in connection with those journeys, which if you can think, if you lived you know, a long life, you would do this so many times over the course of your life, there was a specific collection of songs that were put together. Uh, these psalms, or these songs, are called the songs of ascent. The first is Psalm 120. That's where you see the title first. And then the last one is Psalm 134, 15 psalms in all. We read three of them earlier today. didn't take long. And in fact, it doesn't take long to read the entire uh, section. I think only one of the 15 is even over 10 verses. They tend to be pretty short. You can sit down and you can read them all. And one of the reasons I've been drawn to these in particular at the turn of the year is that these songs are specifically put together for those setting out on a journey. And uh, specifically in the Old Testament context, setting out on a journey to the city of God. Now, before we read our short psalm today, I want to go back to the ones I read earlier. I want to start there. So go back to Psalm 120, and I want to look 
at the three psalms I read earlier to kind of set the stage for what we're going to see today. So Psalm 120 is the first song of ascent. Okay, and the main thing I want you to see in that psalm is that the psalmist, whoever he is, we don't know, is not happy with where he lives or with the people around him. Okay? Uh, he longs to be somewhere else with someone else, someone better, in a better place with better people. Okay? Look at Psalm 120, verse 5. You'll see this. He says, Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshech, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. Okay? The basic gist is that this psalmist is living as a sojourner, as a foreigner, somewhere else, outside of Israel. <clears throat> and he does not feel at home where he is. And he doesn't fit in with those who are around him. So he wants to be somewhere else with someone else. That's the setting of the first song of ascent. Okay? In the next two psalms, Psalm 121 and 122, it's like time to go, time to move, time, time to travel. Okay? So, so in Psalm 121, at the beginning, you, you hear this famous line, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the one who made heaven and earth. It's a pilgrim song. It's a song for the sojourner who's about to go on a journey from where he is to where he wants to be. And the big theme of Psalm 121, which is actually a psalm from two years ago that we, that we looked at, is that the Lord will protect you or keep you. Maybe you remember me reading that. It says he'll keep us six times in that psalm. He'll protect us every step of the journey in front of us. And then if you ask, okay, well, where is it that the pilgrims are going? Where's the destination? All you have to do is look at the beginning of Psalm 122 and to find the answer. Psalm 122, verse 1. I was glad when they said to me, let's go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem built as a city that's bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. You think, where's the destination? Where are the pilgrims going? They're going to Jerusalem, to the city of God. And notice who is going. It's not just one individual. It's all the tribes of Israel. So think again about the guy in Psalm 120, okay, who's living in a foreign land among people who have no heart for the things that are in his heart. When he hears the call, it's time to go to the house of the Lord. He might say with David, I was glad when they said to me, let's go to the house of the Lord. So that's a bit of how the songs of ascent start. Okay? Today, I want to see how they end. And what seems clear is that by the end of the songs, you're looking at the end of the journey. Okay? The pilgrims have finally arrived. They've made it where they want to be. They're in Zion, the city of God, and they've made it to the house 
of the Lord. And that's what I picture when I read Psalm 133. I picture that scene where all of the faithful from all over the land and even outside the land have finally arrived at their destination. They've come from every kind of place, through all kinds of challenges on the journey, and they've all finally made it where they set out to go. And Psalm 133 tells us what those pilgrims would sing about that experience of when they all made it together. Okay. They'd sing this old, old song written by David about what it's like to be all together with the people of God in unity. Psalm 133, let's read it. A song of a sense of David. Behold how good and how pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. What is it like when all the faithful join together in one place with one voice to worship. Behold how good and how pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. Now we're going to look at the details of that a little more closely in a couple minutes, but I just want to start by noting a few basic things. Maybe you saw some of these. Okay, First, you notice this is a song of David. You know, we're not told, as with many songs, we're not told when he wrote it or like what was going on in his life. But it would certainly make sense if David wrote this when all Israel finally came together under his rule. Uh, you see, there was a lot of division. If you read the story of David, there's a lot of division and conflict before everybody united under his rule. And then, unfortunately, later in his life, there was a whole lot of conflict and division. But, but uh, that was all after the sin, uh, his sins with Bathsheba. But for a few years, at least, David experienced great victory and Israel great unity. It's easy to imagine King David singing these words during that sweet time. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. Second, did you notice there are two comparisons made in the psalm? <clears throat> you think of the, how the psalm goes, like verse 1 is kind of the main thing, and then there's two comparisons. Verse 2, say, what's this unity like? How, how precious is it? Well, it's like precious oil. Verse 2 and verse 3, it's like rich dew. We'll come back to this. Okay, but that's how the psalm unfolds, right? And then lastly, do you notice that the psalm ends by pointing us all to Zion, to the city of God? This is something you'll see throughout the Songs of Ascent. Like if you sat down and you read all 15, because they're, they're about the journey to Zion, you'll see Zion throughout all, all of them. Like they're not mentioning every single one, but it's throughout the whole, whole collection. Okay? And, and this one's no different. It, it ends by drawing us all to Zion, to the city of God. Why? Because it's in Zion that God has promised the blessing, life forevermore. Okay? So those are just 
basic things you can see. Now I want to go back and I want to look through the text a little closer. All right? So it's not, not a long text, right? Verse 1 again. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. That's the key verse in the psalm. Everything goes back to that, that verse. That's why there's songs written about this. We sang one earlier. Oh, how good and how, uh, oh, how good it is. That, that is based on this line. Okay? Now you can tell from the opening word, behold, or look, David wants us to stop and think about this. He wants you to think about how good it is and how precious it is when the family of God is together as one. Now, when David says brothers here, this would certainly apply to physical family members. And we can probably relate to that coming off the holidays. If you had a chance to spend time with family lately, I'm sure you can appreciate that line. Whether your experience was really good or terrible, you can still appreciate the line. How good it is when family dwells together as one. Or on the flip side, how ugly it is when a family can't stand being together. And certainly, when you think of literal brothers in the Bible, the good side of this is rarely seen. I was just thinking back to to all the sets of brothers that I know in the Bible. Think of the ones that you might have heard of in the Bible. It's almost never pretty. So, for example, who are the first brothers? Cain and Abel. Not good. Very ugly. Then I think of Isaac and Ishmael. Not good. Jacob and Esau. Very ugly. Joseph and his brothers. Really, really bad. David and his brothers. Also not good. The guy who wrote this had a lot of troubles with his brothers. They did not like him. And to add to that, even with Jesus and his brothers, they did not care for him either throughout his entire earthly ministry. Okay? But all of those negative stories don't contradict the verse. They just enhance the truth of the verse. Behold how good it is. Like, so even if you had a terrible experience with, with family, like that doesn't contradict this verse. It actually affirms it, like how good it is whenever family dwells together in unity. But as you can imagine, this verse is not only about physical family. When David writes it, he's probably thinking primarily about the nation as a whole, all Israel, united under him and his rule. And certainly when it was sung by the pilgrims throughout the generations, it wasn't primarily about your immediate family. It was about the faithful from every place, all coming together to one place to do one thing, to worship. Behold how good that is when brothers dwell together in unity. When the family of God gathers to one place with one heart for one thing, that is an incredibly precious sight to behold. But how precious is it? What could even be compared to the beauty and joy of such a sight? Verse 2, it is like 
the precious oil. On the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down to the collar of his robes. Now, Nesha has been asking me this week what I have been studying. And my answer has mostly been Aaron's beard. <laughs> uh, perhaps this is why Trisha has been wanting me to grow a beard lately. Okay. But really, I've been thinking about this verse quite a bit. Okay. Have you ever thought about this verse? Verse 1 is known. This verse, not known. <laughs> okay. The beauty of brothers living in unity is like precious oil on the head running down on the beard. Cam, have you ever thought about about this? Okay. Okay. What what does that mean? Obviously, we are pretty far removed from this culturally. So we have to start start there with the simple idea that having oil poured on your head in this culture was a beautiful, pleasant thing, especially in a very dry climate. This was a refreshing and delightful blessing. That's why, for example, we read things like this just a little bit later in the Psalms. In Psalm 141, it says, Let a righteous man strike me. That is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. That is oil on my head. Even in Jesus' day, much, much later, this was still true in the culture. So much so that Jesus, we hear Jesus say this to a Pharisee who was all up in arms about how this really sinful lady was like crying on Jesus' feet and washing his feet with her tears. And, and the Pharisee can't believe that Jesus would allow this to happen. And, and think about what Jesus says to that man. He says, do you see this woman? I came into your house and you did not give me any water for my feet. But she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not pour oil on my head. But she has poured perfume on my feet. Or perhaps most well-known of all is the great verse from Psalm 23 about the good shepherd. You, Lord, anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Okay, So I think at first... We should read the comparison just with that basic idea in mind that the pleasantness of God's family being at one is like the pleasantness of having oil poured on the head, so much oil that it starts running down the beard. But then in the middle of verse 2, all of a sudden, you realize that David isn't just wanting us to think generally about how nice that would be for anybody to get oil poured on their head. No, David wants you to think now about one particular day when precious oil was poured out on the head of one particular man. Okay, you, did you see that? Because he says it's, it's like precious oil on the head running down on the beard and then it's like almost like a dash, like on the beard of Aaron and running down onto the collar of his robes. Now, what's that all about? Okay, here's, a, here's a little bit of the backstory. Right? David is pointing us <coughs> to that one precious day when Moses poured precious oil on his own brother's head. 
to set Aaron apart as the very first high priest of Israel. Now, you can read about this on your own in Exodus and in Leviticus. Okay, and what you'll notice if you go back and read this is that this was a very special, precious oil. It was so special, in fact, that God forbid anyone else to ever have that oil poured on their head. In fact, there were instructions in it that no one could ever try to replicate the recipe for making that oil. It was forbidden in all of Israel. This was, this was for Aaron and his family. It was the most precious oil. Okay? And the story where this is actually uh, taking place then is in Leviticus chapter 8. And what we're supposed to do <clears throat> in this psalm is to think about that, about that scene. We're supposed to think about the beauty of that moment when that precious oil fell down the head of Aaron and ran down his beard and onto the collar of his robes. Can you imagine the scene? Okay. Here's what has happened. The entire nation is camped at Mount Sinai. Moses calls the entire assembly to come out of their tents and to come out to the entrance of the tent of meeting. There is something Moses wants to make sure all Israel sees. Moses and his own brother, Aaron, then go up in front of all of the people, and Moses takes that precious, sacred oil. And Aaron is in his incredibly precious robes, and Moses pours that oil all over his brother's head, and it starts running down the beard and all over the collar of his robes. He is being set apart as the only man who can bring Israel to God. Can you imagine that moment, seeing the precious oil falling down his head? That was an unforgettable moment. In Psalm 133, it's like David asks, do you want to know how precious it is when God's people come together as one? It's as precious as the day when that oil ran down Aaron's beard. But that's not the only comparison in Psalm 133. David has one more. He wants you to think about it. verse 3. He says, it is also like the dew of Hermon falling on the mountains of Zion. Okay. Or as the NIV reads, it's as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. Okay, what's the point? This requires that you know something about Hermon. And if you are asking yourself, who is Hermon? Then I need to help you. Okay. Hermon is a mountain. Okay. Mount Hermon in the northern part of Israel. It was a high mountain, typically snow-capped, majestic, glorious mountain, okay? And what was that mountain known for, do you suppose? It was known for dew, right? Mountain dew. Yes, I could not resist this, okay. <clears throat> but truly, Hermon was known for dew, dew that would saturate the surrounding land. That's why everything around Mount Hermon 
was really fruitful and really, really green because this beautiful, majestic mountain, there was dew that came from it all over the surrounding regions. And so everything was fruitful and green. Okay. Mount Zion is not nearby. Okay. And it was nothing like Mount Hermon in this respect. Okay. It was dry, arid, not particularly fruitful. In fact, it would often be the case around Zion that it would not rain for months near Zion. And there would also be very little dew there. And in this area, at this time, if you don't have rain, you better have dew. Because if you don't have either, it's really hard to grow anything. It's really rough to rain. And that would often be the case in the south of Israel, all around Zion, around Jerusalem. So what is the point of the comparison? How precious is it when the family of God dwells together as one? It would be like the rich, wet dew of Hermon falling on the mountains of Zion. And by the way, that is the very sort of thing that God promises throughout the prophets that he will do one day for Zion especially in books like Isaiah. Okay, this, here's just a couple of texts from Isaiah. There's these prophecies like, the desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. Or in Isaiah 51, the Lord will surely comfort Zion and will look with compassion on all her ruins. He will make Zion's deserts like Eden. Her wastelands like the garden of the Lord. And perhaps that's what we're being reminded of in the very last phrase of Psalm 133. For there in Zion, the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Now, I'm sure more could be said about our psalm today, but I want, what I want to do in the closing moments is I want us to think about how the psalm sheds light on Jesus and on the New Testament. Okay, so I won't develop all these things, but it's worth your time thinking about this a bit, how both David and Aaron, the two guys mentioned in the psalm, how both of them actually point us to Jesus in kind of unfortunate ways. David, for example, writes the psalm about unity. But if you read the story of David, you know that David's sins end up leading to the fracturing of God's people and of his family especially. Aaron, with him, and that scene of the precious oil, it's, also, it's hard to forget that while Moses was up on Mount Sinai getting the instructions about the precious oil, what was Aaron doing? He was down at the bottom of the mountain leading the people to build the golden calf. So I think there's something in just the references to David and Aaron that you're like, we need a better king than David and a better priest than Aaron. And, and thankfully, we've got both in one man, in Jesus. Now, more could be said about that, but I want to focus on the main emphasis of Psalm 133 and how it shapes what you read throughout the pages of the New Testament. Now, on the one hand, if you, if you would just like go through the New Testament and say, okay, can I find a quotation of Psalm 133 in the New Testament? You'll be looking for a, large, uh, a long time because there aren't any. No direct quotes that I know of. Like that, that verse, how 
good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity, I, I don't think it's anywhere in the New Testament. <clears throat> but on the other hand, that, that emphasis, that theme is everywhere on the pages of the New Testament. How good it is. If you think about it, in the Old Testament, there are not a lot of texts like this. In fact, that's why Psalm 133 is known. That's why songs are written about it. Because it's, it's, not, a, it's not a common statement in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, that theme from Psalm 133 becomes a driving emphasis of Jesus and Paul. What God longs for and what Jesus died for is this, a unified people. Just think, for example, of what Jesus prayed for the night of his betrayal. What was he praying for? He says, Father, I do not ask for these only, but for all who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you've sent me. The glory that you've given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, you in me, that they may be perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them as you loved me. But it's clearly not Jesus, just Jesus who picked that up. Right? The, the vision of the beauty of God's people together as one captured the heart of Paul. We read from Colossians earlier, but I, I would point us now just to listen to the words that he writes in Ephesians. When he says, I, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you are called to one hope. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of us all. This is just one example of what is everywhere in Paul. The vision for the beauty of God's people dwelling together as one captured Paul's heart. Does it capture yours? Like, do you see it? The beauty of this. And that's what I want to think about as we close this New Year's sermon. As we enter 2022, how should this study shape us for the year ahead of us? The first thing that I hope is that you have seen how precious it is for God's people to gather together as one. So Israel would go on pilgrimage a couple times a year. God designed that to unite the people. He knew that would help them. They would all need to do it, and they'd all need to do it together and would remind them of their common heritage and their common identity. There was even a playlist, you know, for like the road, the Songs of Ascent. Okay? Have, you, have you ever thought of how awesome it is for us to be able to come here together week by week to worship?
year by year. We come from all sorts of backgrounds. We come from various homes, streets, neighborhoods. And think about it. We spend our weeks living, as it were, in a foreign land, in a place where we don't really feel at home, surrounded by people who do not have a heart for the things in our hearts. But then, on Sunday morning, it's like the call goes out. It's time to go to the house of the Lord. And then we all journey in from all over. right? And, and though I might like, especially on a negative 20 degree morning, to have a better parking situation, <laughs> okay? I kind of like having people, like having to stream in from the different streets and, and blocks. <clears throat> and, and just think about it. When you're seeing people walk this way, why is anybody doing this? Why did you come? We come here to be together as one, to worship our king. And you know what this is every single week? It is incredibly good, pleasant, precious. It's a gift from the king. I would actually encourage you to, to talk about church like that with your neighbors and your coworkers and your family. Say, what did you do this weekend? So just saying, you know, I went to church. Like, try to get them to think or to see what you see. That they'll never have heard anybody talk about them. going to church like that. It's the most precious thing in my life. It's the greatest experience that we have any week. There's nothing more beautiful than when God's people come together as one. So first, I just hope you've seen the beauty of it. And then second, I hope you see, maybe in a fresh way, why it's so important to protect our unity. As Paul says, we must be eager to maintain the unity. The question then is like, how do you do that? Okay. What does that take? And, and I just want to point out what Jesus and Paul said in, in the few texts we looked at. It takes things like this. It takes prayer. Okay. Jesus prayed for this. Paul prayed for this. Don't ever take the unity of God's people for granted. Pray for it. Pray for it all year long. It also takes all of us being gentle with each other, not harsh. It takes us being humble, not proud. Pride destroys unity. It takes us being patient with each other, or as Paul says in some translations, sometimes even putting up with each other because we love each other. And it means we always need to remind ourselves that the things that we share are of far more significance than the things we don't. We share in one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all. And then finally this morning, I want to remind us that these regular gatherings, hopefully we'll have 52 this year, 
<coughs> of the family of God, okay, as precious as they are, okay, are only preparation for a greater gathering in Zion. Israel would travel to Zion time after time. They'd, they'd anticipate this. They would know it's coming up. And then on the journey, they would anticipate the joy of actually getting there and being together as one. They would even sing Psalm 133 about the beauty of it. But then they would go home and they'd go back to their lives and to work and to serve, to worship, to give, to bless, and to wait until the next time that the call would go out that it's time to go to the house of the Lord. And then they would repeat the same cycle again and again and again, always going to Zion and then always going home to serve, to work, to bless, and to wait for the next time. We do something very similar, week by week, year by year. But one day, the pilgrimages will be over. We'll no longer be going back somewhere to live as sojourners and exiles. One day, the dew of Hermon will fall on the hills of Zion, and the earth will be renewed, and we'll be taking one more journey together to the city of God, never to leave that home again. For there in Zion, the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the joy of being together today, this new year. I pray for the continued and even deepened unity of your people here. Thank you for how you have blessed us with such peace and love the years behind us. We pray that by your grace, you will help us to preserve the unity that we have in your spirit Help us to be gentle with one another and humble, to be forgiving and forbearing. Help us to love one another. And Lord, I pray that we'll even be able to talk with many who don't know anything like this because they don't know you. I pray we'll be able to talk with them about what we get to experience every week so that they may see and they may know that you sent Jesus and that what he has done is true and real. Well, we pray all these things in his name. Amen.